I didn't really know anything about money management. I knew nothing about investing. All I knew was I could spend money on credit cards, but I had to pay it back. And I definitely wanted more money than I had in my bank account. Learning that compounding interest is a thing, starting to understand how to save for you know bigger ticket items, that was very alluring to me at the beginning. And I haven't stopped kind of obsessing about money since then. Coming face to face with some of the emotions behind purchases. Like I know I purchase things when I'm lonely. And so, you know, when my husband was traveling quite a bit back in 2014, 2015, I started to see a little bit of those tendencies creep up again. But I think I was much more aware of it this time. And I was able to say out loud that I'm feeling this way and that's why I'm, you know, wanting to online shop or buy a coffee every single day or twice a day even because I deserve it because, you know, my life is lonely right now or is not the way I want it to be or whatever your issue or challenges are. I think when you can start to identify why you're doing it and the emotions behind it, that is, again, very powerful because you can do something different about it. This is The Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Janine Rogan wants you to know that no one is born with an understanding of personal finance. Janine got pretty good at making money early. Queen of the side hustle, they called her. But somehow her bank account was always empty and her credit cards were always maxed. This is unfortunately not uncommon in our society. Making good money, but somehow the money disappears. Some people tell me this like it's some kind of unsolvable mystery. Luckily for Janine, she had a friend who pointed her to the world of personal finance books and blogs, and she was hooked after that. Today, you can find Janine's personal finance writing all over the internet. Janine joined me from Calgary, Alberta to share her personal finance story. My first money memory was my parents giving me a piggy bank to keep some of my coins in and wanting to fill that up as fast as I possibly could. And then being able to take that money into the bank and open a bank account. I think it was with RBC. I was maybe eight. And we had those little bank books that you got to put in the machine and it would uh, Mm -hmm. go back and forth and print what uh, the balance was in your bank account. And I really remember that from a young age. Do you remember the balance or is that too much? I don't remember the specific balance, but I remember wanting it to go up. Yeah. <laughs> so I liked that piece of it, seeing as I put money into this bank account, the balance would increase. How do we know that that's good? Do you think your parents uh, like told you, like if, it, if you put more money in and it goes up, that's good, you'll have more money and, and then you can do stuff with it? Yeah, I think... There was conversations around like save money for a rainy day, but that's about it when it came to money management, I think, in our household. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you have to count all of these coins out? Like, I, I'm I'm trying to picture the process because I'm sure a lot of people do this. Like, you just bring in this big bag of coins or something. Absolutely, I had to count them all out, and my dad had to change jar too. So sometimes we got to help him with that. But we'd have those paper rolls that you actually got yeah. to roll the you know however many quarters or loonies or pennies up in those. And that's what we did. And we'd bring those into the bank. And so you're building money in this bank account, which is not an uncommon uh, uh, thing for uh, for young kids to be doing. But but what you do with it uh, seems to change as you get older. Do you remember, were you saving it for something specific or? I don't think I was really saving for something specific when I was young. But then when I got into my teenage years and like early adolescence, I definitely started spending a lot of money that was in my bank account, Um, you know, getting access to a debit card and then ultimately a credit card. I spent a lot of money at Starbucks and probably on clothes and stuff that I didn't really need. Where did the money come from? When I was younger, there was allowances and birthday money. And then when I turned 16, I got my first job as a hostess at an Italian restaurant here, I guess it would be in Edmonton, not Calgary. But um, money started obviously being deposited into that account once I started working. Okay, so you're working as a hostess, you're working evenings and weekends? Yep. While I was in high school, I was working um, some evenings, but predominantly like the weekend shifts. Okay, so you're just racking up the money. And then you're like, I want to go out and do stuff. And are you hanging with your friends and stuff? Absolutely. And I think like I really didn't like asking my parents for money. I remember going on a trip in high school and having to see if they would be able to pay for it and asking them. And they were kind of like wishy-washy going back and forth. And I said, like, I'll I'll pay for some of it with this job that I had. And ultimately, I did get to go on this trip, but it felt really bad asking them for money or it felt kind of like yucky. So I never really wanted to have to do that again and ask them for money. So I think having a job and earning an income was kind of a way for me to get a little bit of independence from my parents and be able to spend my money on what I wanted. Yeah. So that that was your motivation to earn your own money. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, some people, if they ask their parents, they'll be like, yeah, sure, whatever. And they, they would have a very different experience than you. And maybe only like the the excess, uh, you know, I want to buy these $300 pair of jeans. And they would say, well, that's a little too much. But uh, a school trip, you said, or was it a just trip with your friends? The French and Spanish students at my high school that like were taking those classes had the ability to go on a trip to Europe actually over spring break. So not a cheap trip by any means, but we did get to see France and Spain and I think still to this day, I kind of feel bad that I had to ask them for money at that point. Really? So they, they must like they seem like they're probably just very wise or frugal with their money. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, my parents have done well uh, over the years. They've paid off two houses. Uh, they vacation now, I think, way more than they did back when I was in high school. But I think back then, I mean, I was dancing competitively, so I'm sure that wasn't cheap. But I think they were also trying to pay down their mortgage at that point and get it paid off. Yeah, I, I don't think they really live in excess. I know I get frustrated when I go to their houses and their pots and pans are like 
25 years old. I'm like, mom, you need to buy a new pan. You can afford it. Interesting. Interesting. So they're, you, they're already paying for some stuff for you and they're trying to pay all their stuff down. And, and you, you kind of come to them for, with this trip that's sounds like a trip of a lifetime for a high school student. Yeah. There was 30 of us that got to go. So so yeah, I could see. Like, I think most parents would uh, would probably think a lot about that when just say, "Yeah, here's the whatever, a couple thousand dollars." I'm imagining. Yeah, it was a few thousand. I I don't know if I know how much it was in total. That number escapes me. But yeah, I just remember that feeling of never wanting to ask them for money again. Yeah. So in in a way, you're you're very lucky that you're able to get the money at all. But Absolutely. it le- it left this bad. A taste in your mouth of well, hmm, it's not necessarily worth it. So now I'm gonna make my own way. So, I mean, it's not great, but it's good that you know you got your independence early that way. For sure. Yeah, because you I mean, you know a lot of people just rely on on, on their parents and uh, you know handouts and maybe they take too much advantage. And uh, it's kind of good that they indirectly drew a line uh, for, for you uh, to be like, you know what, it's uh, it'll feel better for me if I just earn my own money. Okay, so you did, and you went on that trip, but uh, like after that, now you're just working as much as you can during high school? Yeah, I finished up high school and uh, started university, and I think I was working like two or three jobs at a time trying to earn money, and I was probably spending it as fast as I earned it back then. Really? Still? Uh, how did, how was school paid for, though? I was very fortunate that my parents paid for my university education, and I'm definitely very grateful for that. But I, I was still living at home in the first couple of years of university, but all of my uh, spending, if I wanted to go out or drive somewhere, put gas in the car, that stuff was all my responsibility. Yeah. And I mean, I know I'm talking about this a lot, but it's good for parents to set boundaries so that their kids know, right? Because every, every family is different. And everybody has different ideas of what you know uh, they should do for their kids, and everybody's right uh, because it's their life, right? Absolutely. So at least they communicated that to you. It's like, okay, we're going to pay for this, and then, but the rest of it is uh, your responsibility. So that's good. You seem to have clear lines about that, and yeah. so you worked. You you just kept working during university. Yep, I was. I think still a hostess for a little bit, and then. I was working as a server and then uh, also at a retail store in my first couple years of university while um, I was also teaching dance. So I've always had a knack for side hustles and wanting yeah. to earn as much money as I possibly could. So you're just figuring out whatever you're... So you built up these dance skills during, you know, I guess when you were probably very young uh, growing up, right? And so you dance competitively, you said. And would you win prizes or? Yeah, we would uh, compete a lot in the spring. So that definitely took up a lot of my time. And once I started university, I kind of took a step back from that, but still got to be part of the dance community and earn some income from it by uh, teaching younger students. That's good. And and you don't seem to be afraid of uh, of customer service jobs. No, no. You probably <laughs> you got a lot of experience there, I'm sure. Yes, I enjoy talking to people. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, but also uh, some people are not the best to talk to and you still have to serve them. Uh, like You probably have some memories about uh, some bad ones. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in the service industry, you see it a lot. But I think my worst story was probably around a parent that I was okay. teaching her daughter and she was not very happy with me. But 
that was definitely a lesson on how to deal with, you know, unhappy customers. Is that something you can share or would that be too much? No, I'm happy to share. Um, it was a class of five-year-olds and maybe this makes me sound mean, but they were not really <laughs> paying attention or listening. And we give stickers out at the end of every class. The whole class ended up not getting a sticker that day. And there were some little uh, ones that were maybe upset. And her mom uh, basically tore a strip off of me in an email and <laughs> about this sticker. And without obviously, you know, finding that email and rereading it. I think, I hope I deleted it at this point, but I had to figure out a way to respond to her and do it in a professional way so that, uh, you know, it wasn't just like emailing back and forth and fighting. What did you do? I, I took a full day to not respond to her. Cause I think oh, if that's I smart. responded right away. It probably wouldn't have been nice, but ultimately I just messaged her back, thanking her for her comments and, asking her if she could come into class after the next class and talk in person because I felt that things get blown out of proportion very easily on the internet as we both know but in email as well yes you know we accidentally are, are uh, talking about parenting uh, a little bit here it's like do we do we want our kids to learn lessons or do we want them to just feel like everything's uh, you know hunky dory all the time sometimes you're not going to get a sticker you know, it's like, or your allowance, bringing it back to money or your parents can't yeah. pay for everything that you want. That's right. And so, yeah, what happens is, you know, you have your childhood that that little girl had her childhood and you guys meet in the future. And somehow she thinks she's entitled to everything, including the sticker for not doing a good job. And you understand that life is real. And who gets further ahead, right? Sometimes you're not always going to get a raise for showing up. And I think those lessons are kind of built into us early on. Yeah, that's a really, really good uh, comparison because I think you know a lot of people, a lot of people that I've seen over the years uh, in a work environment, they think that they should be praised just for being there. Meanwhile, they're not really standing out and you know performing above the rest. So you're learning this stuff, you're, and now you're even te trying to teach it to, to young kids. And uh, how did university go? What, uh, what degree did you get? So I started off in the faculty of engineering, actually. And okay, yeah. hated it, like just <laughs> loathed it. But I was good at math in high school, so everyone told me, oh, go into engineering. So got into engineering at the U of A, and then after one semester, I was like, this is the worst. So, <laughs> I ended up switching into general sciences and I was looking at getting a degree in nutrition and I was really feeling that this science degree was not really going to get me a job in the future, kind of having that general science degree. So eventually I actually ended up um, taking an accounting class. My mom is an accountant and after okay. two years in university, she was like, maybe you should just try an accounting class. <laughs> and I did. And it just clicked for me. Like in that first couple classes, I was like, dang it. She was right. Was it because of her being an accountant that you were resisting trying accounting? I think so. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to be my own person. I don't yeah. need to follow in my mom's footsteps. Accounting seems boring. <laughs> and so I graduated with a business degree and majored in accounting. 
<laughs> and, and so did I too. So that's that's funny because yeah, it's like I I went to a Western thinking I was going into Ivy School of Business and become a manager of something. I don't know. The numbers just spoke to me. I guess I I, I took accounting in high school uh, as opposed to you not taking any before, and so I knew I knew in high school that I liked it. I just didn't know it was the way that I wanted to go. And eventually it wasn't because I didn't finish my CGA and, uh, you know, I still have accounting on the side, but I didn't want it to be my full and only career. But you, you did do that. Yes. So after university, <laughs> I articled at one of the big four in tax, actually. Uh, but oh, now, wow. now I feel like I don't do as much accounting. So I think getting my CPA designation was kind of a way to open a door sure. to more broadly the business world yeah that, no, that's totally correct and uh, i just kind of thought about it too much and i was like i don't want this and uh you know i went my own way but you're right uh, as everybody was telling me at the time it would have probably done me no harm to finish it you know who knows right it's all it's all in the past but uh you got it so you get out of university are you still doing side hustle jobs yeah, by that point, I had already started writing about personal finance. I guess I skipped. That okay, part. so yeah, so <laughs> w when did that start? So when did you get the 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 bug for that? So when I was back in my science degree, I had a friend who was taking a human ecology course. Actually, she was training to become a teacher, and she took a course called family finance, and mm. they had to do a kind of a book report on uh, this book called Automatic Millionaire, or they got to pick one of three, but she picked that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Her and I would, you know, we'd meet up in the library and we'd, we'd study together and, you know, do our assignments. And she was talking about this book and I was kind of like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like um, I had just finished actually uh, backtracking a little bit, a summer job where I was being paid quite well. And by the end of the summer, I had like, $10 in my bank account. Like I remember once this was so embarrassing, but I was at the gas station and my credit card got declined and my debit card got declined. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this wow. gas that I've already put in my car. So you're at, at this point of your life, you're doing this summer job. Personal finance is not really. No, not at all. I, like I said, I was spending probably money faster than I was getting it from all of the jobs that I was doing. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So then uh, your, your cards are declined. Yeah. That that, was... I mean, I, that, that seems so crazy to me to not like just, I guess. Yeah. But like, how do you feel about it now? I mean, it's still kind of embarrassing to talk about, but I think it's, it's good <laughs> and people need to know that you're not just like born with this ability to manage your money. It does take a lot of work. I just like wasn't paying attention to the balance on my credit card or the balance in my debit account. And back then, I don't know if the apps were as good as well. So technology has definitely been a huge uh, advantage for us now, but sure. I just didn't care about anything other than buying whatever I wanted with the money I was earning. And that caught up to me very quickly. You think this is a bit of a rebellion against your parents? Maybe a little. I don't know. I've never really thought of it that way. But after hearing what you said, right, about that, you know, they were very they thoughtful about, you know, what would they were spend their money on? And you're like, I just want to buy what I want to buy. And I'm going to make my own money and I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, you know what? It might have been looking back and actually sitting down and thinking about it. I, I 
they were very frugal and they would only buy things when they needed them. So yeah, maybe the, I pan, just, the pans in the kitchen, uh, you're the the, they still bother you. They do still bother me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. So continue with what happened after yeah. those were declined so, and the automatic millionaire. That was really embarrassing. And then eventually I kind of, you know, was maybe not purchasing things for a couple of weeks and school had started. So I was back to working part time and not earning the income I was over the summer. Again, still didn't really have any money in my bank account. But my girlfriend was talking about this book. And I was like, that sounds interesting. I didn't really know anything about money management. I knew nothing about investing. All I knew was I could spend money on credit cards, but I had to pay it back. And I definitely wanted more money than I had in my bank account. So she lent it to me. And I have been hooked on money ever since learning that compounding interest is a thing, starting to understand how to save for, you know, bigger ticket items. That kind of was very alluring to me at the beginning. And I haven't stopped kind of obsessing about money since then. So that's David Bach, right? Yes, that is David Bach. And and have you ever uh, had the chance to meet him? I haven't, no. Or or see him because he was at FinCon in uh, in Dallas. He was one of the keynote speakers. Oh, okay. So yeah. I didn't meet him personally, but I got to see him on stage. How was he? He was cool. Cause, oh yeah, he was. He's great. Like, cause he's he's sort of one of the founders of all of this, right? Yeah. He he coined the latte factor, right? He did yes. Which then he went and talked about like it's not about lattes. Everybody, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's gotten some definite hate in the personal finance community over the years. Yeah. What, what's your opinion on, well, I guess the latte factor in general, and then maybe if you have a, a spin on it. When I was making like a part-time wage when I was in university, I think there's definitely something to it. But that's like when I was earning, you know, four to $600 a month for fun money or saving or whatever. But now as I, you know, progress in my career... It's probably not as relevant. I can have a $4 Starbucks latte and it's not going to wreck my finances. But I'm also in a place where I've set myself up for success financially. And that's right. I think ultimately, if you're really going to focus on the little things, it's a lot of effort and a lot of time. And you might be uh, using your time better if you're actually negotiating down some of those bigger ticket items. So we actually just bought a house and I found out that our neighbors, so we were in a fourplex. So one of the other units, they paid $25,000 more than us and they bought after us. And to me, that seems like just crazy that you would spend that much over, especially when you have access to information because we had already bought that's so right. That, that seems like I would rather negotiate $25,000 off my house than worry about $4 on a Starbucks coffee. That's right. Because that's a lot of coffees. It is. There are a, lot of lo- a lot of lattes there <laughs> with the 25 grand. Yeah. And I mean, I've said this in recent episodes, but people are penny wise and pound foolish. Absolutely. I don't know why. Like we, Maybe we're very intimidated by the big purchases. Do you think that's it? think so and negotiating isn't easy like we had to hold our ground right. on this or you know sure. asking for a rent reduction that's a little bit squirmy if that's the right word to use it feels uncomfortable to ask yes. for that money off whereas you don't have to negotiate with anyone to not spend money on a latte so i think there's like that 
that piece of having a bit of confrontation. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. People should spend more time focusing on, you know, getting a rent reduction or lowering their cell phone bill or their utilities or their mortgage amount that they're going to pay as opposed to worrying about a $4 coffee. How do you get a rent reduction? I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about that. Well, I live in Calgary, so it's been pretty terrible in the economy these last few years. Sure. And um, there's a lot of vacancies right now. And I think obviously it depends on your market that you're in, like Toronto and Vancouver. I don't think this would ever be applicable. But we went (laughs) to our landlords and said, hey, after a year of renting, you know, everything else kind of has come down a few hundred dollars. So we're we're asking for a rent reduction, you know, otherwise we're going to not renew our lease. And they wanted us to stay. And we worked through to a number that we thought was fair. And, you know, we ended up staying there for three and a half years because of it. Wow. That's so smart. I've never thought of doing it after the fact. I mean, you know, when we lived uh, downtown Toronto, our landlord, he tried, he posted it at the, uh, at a rate that he would get like that would actually cover his mortgage and condo fees and nobody would bite. So he had to reduce it before anybody would even jump on it. So that's like, it's like a pre reduction, yeah. um, which still made it pretty high uh, for us to pay. Uh, But I, you know, I, I'm pretty certain that he still was barely covering because the condo fees were like $900 a month or something like that. And then, you know, if he didn't have it paid off, if he's, even if he still had a half of the balance, the mortgage. It's tough uh, when you buy real estate in a big area and maybe the market is telling people like, oh, well, I can't afford whatever, maybe $3,000 a month if that was how much you actually need to cover costs or make a little bit of money. Landlords want a good tenant. So if you have a good working relationship with your landlord, they might be open to you know decreasing your rent if they know that you're going to stay for a number of years as well. That's right. That's right. And I still appreciate what my landlord did uh, back when I was having gambling troubles. Uh, I mean, he didn't know it was gambling troubles because uh, <laughs> that wouldn't have been, you know, I just said I was having uh, issues and I was going uh, away for a little bit. Uh, I went to Peru for a month and I needed some money for that. If Would it be, he be okay if I paid you know, my rent for the couple of months when I got back and started a new job? I really appreciate him taking a chance on me there. We had some years of, uh, you know, built up of a relationship. So yeah, sometimes you just got to ask and uh, don't go get the payday loan because you think that that's the only answer. Yeah, no, I mean, a few minutes of uncomfortable conversations around lowering rent, I think pay off for sure. Absolutely. Okay. So you're, you're, you read uh, automatic millionaire front to back And you're like, this is my world now. It is, yeah. And I started perusing the internet and stumbled upon a few personal finance blogs. And I think I've always been into writing, whether it's been in a journal or a personal blog. So I started writing about money and how it affected me or the questions I had or, you know, these things I was figuring out about compound interest and, you know, how if you invested in a GIC or whatever it was, you could make money without actually doing anything. And so that kind of fascinated me. And I was writing about it a little bit on the internet at that point. And then throughout my degree, I kept up with it. And it was kind of a good way to learn the personal side of finances when I was learning the corporate side of things in my accounting degree. And then 
it just kind of married really nicely with my CPA designation and took off from there. Isn't it funny that we learn all this stuff about money and it's not about ourselves at all? It just seems strange to not have that as being part of it. Like, But and here's also your personal stuff. It's crazy when I look back or even when I talk to accountants today in the the world I'm in, there are so many of them that don't invest or don't know how or are intimidated by the stock market. And I'm like, your CPA is like, you're giving advice to people yeah. about their businesses, but it's not, it's unfortunate. It's not part of the curriculum, but uh, I think it's important nonetheless. Yeah. I've, I've never really thought about this, but uh, I, if I was talking to someone who was responsible for the curriculum, I would suggest throw in a personal finance course in there. Why not, right? It's It can only add value and at least for just even to take care of your own finances. So did you have uh, GeneRogan.com at that point? No, I did not. It was My Pennies, My Thoughts was my blog. That was your original blog. Is that still around? It redirects to my to my website now. And my website okay, so you now rebranded. Looks, yeah, it looks a lot different. Once I got my designation, I kind of felt like my pennies, my thoughts was a little like young or cutesy and I wanted to be taken more seriously as an expert in the space. Um, because at that point I, you know, was writing and speaking about money and getting paid to do so. And I felt like I had a good uh, level of knowledge for what I wanted. And um I guess that's why I decided to do the rebrand to JanineRogan.com. Yeah, so you are, you're writing and it's just for yourself, really. Uh, my, my penny's my thoughts. Did you start getting traffic and visitors and stuff and, and people? Yeah, interested? for sure. And I think that ultimately kind of turned into a bit of a portfolio. And I started being able to pitch myself or have companies reaching out and asking if I'd be interested in writing for them and you know, queen of the side hustle can't turn down an extra couple That's hundred right. bucks. So I definitely probably charged way too little at the beginning, but started <laughs> to, you know, earn an income from writing. And it seemed like a pretty easy way and a pretty flexible way that I could earn money at the end of my degree, as well as, you know, going into working at a, a big public firm that Really didn't pay that much. Really, to start, eh? Oh God! So, no. so you're <laughs> you're you're keeping in with your accounting, and you're doing what you know you need to do to either keep or get your CPA designation. But on the side, you're working for brands that are reaching out to you. Yeah, a lot of financial institutions did start to reach out, or I'd reach out to them and uh, started writing for them relatively regularly, or whenever they needed content. What year did you start like writing? I guess professionally, if you. If you want to, if you have a, a time when you think, you know, I actually made enough money to be called a professional writer. Well, I guess it depends how much is actually required because <laughs> I think a in, dollar. <laughs> back in university, I was doing, oh, my friend found this random like ghostwriting or copyright for some company in Edmonton. And I think they like they were like 300 word articles, but I think they paid like $15 an article. So okay. I, I don't know if I'd count that, but um, I think like 2013, 2014 was probably when I started earning a little bit more than $15 in my article for my writing. So maybe I would say then as opposed to that random writing gig. And you like writing. It's, it's always something you want to do. It's also helping you learn and keep up with all of your personal finance stuff. 
so what what's happening with your personal money now? You sounds like you were in debt before, and did you start making a plan? Yeah, I did start making a plan, and I think when I started, kind of becoming a little bit obsessed with money, it was before I knew how to use Excel. So I'd make these okay. charts on paper about how much I was going to save each week or each month and <laughs> color code it and all of that good stuff. But obviously, it kind of as I learned a little bit more about how to use Excel and through my business degree, all of those plans are now sitting in Excel. But financially, I would say now everything is pretty automated. We don't really touch much from a, on a monthly basis. It kind of just happens. And I think that's a great way to make it less emotional when you're dealing with your money. So what, what was one of the key things? Like, Because you were always out of money. You were spending everything. Were you just becoming more mindful about like if I think about my purchase or if I wait for it? Or is, is it was delayed gratification a big thing for you? Yeah, a couple items there. One was starting to save and, you know, making my money go into savings accounts as opposed to uh, just buying things. I think I opened my first RSP when I was 19 and I put $25 in it. Seeing that balance start to grow and getting to like the $500 mark or the $1,000 mark was kind of crazy yeah. to me that I had this money, even though it wasn't much, it was, you know, money I had saved. And maybe it kind of went back to that childhood memory of wanting to see the balance go up that I enjoyed. Yeah. Interesting. In initial memory. And you're like, oh, I, I, that's a good feeling. I remember this feeling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then the other piece of it was I started to understand a little bit more about where what I was buying was coming from. And I also started using, I guess what I call the 48 hour rule. I know some people use the 24 hour rule, but if I still want it in 48 hours, then it's probably something that I can go back and purchase provided I have, you know, either saved up enough for it, or I have room in my budget for it. But I started to find that if I didn't indulge in those impulse purchases, or the marketing ladies in the store saying that, you know, this sells out so quickly, like you better buy it today. When I started not taking a part of that or, you know, putting something in an online cart and then waiting that 48 hours, I found most of the time I would either f completely forget about it or in two days I would kind of be like, well, I don't know, I could be investing this money and making it make more money as opposed to wasting it on something that I don't necessarily need. And maybe I've turned into my parents a little bit where I'm like, well, if it's not completely broken, I don't think we should replace it. <laughs> well, I heard two voices in there, a little bit of Kate Flanders and a little bit of Warren Buffett. You know, Kate Flanders had a spending problem. I don't know if you, you read the, the Year of Less. Yes, I did. Very good. And you, I'm sure you know Kate. Yes, yes. And Warren Buffett always said, I can't buy this thing because this $50 is going to turn into $80,000 one day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, how could I ever spend that money when it's going to grow? If Once you understand compound interest, how can you let go? You know, doing those calculations and understanding what my money could do for me definitely made it harder to spend on frivolous things. Yeah. So the knowledge helped. Also, you know, just the understanding of... Uh, well, you're just contrasting having no money in the bank and not understanding why. Did you just feel like you had more power and control? Is that important too? Yeah, for sure. I think control is a huge piece of it. That's one thing that I'm a little bit of a control freak, but I would <laughs> say that's one thing I really like is being able to 
see that I'm in control of it and kind of no one can dictate where that money is going. If we love spreadsheets, does that mean we're control freaks? I would say no, but like maybe other <laughs> people would say yes. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're still going to do that spreadsheet uh, podcast, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I did start the blog and I'm going to send that to you. But yeah, spreadsheets are everything. And whenever somebody's like, you know, how does, what's the first step for this person to get their finances in order? I'm like, well, they just put it all in a spreadsheet first. Like, we got to be able to see the numbers in a nice, organized, concise yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, coming <laughs> face to face with those numbers on a monthly or a weekly basis, or maybe if you're crazy, a daily basis, I definitely don't open those daily, but starting to understand what your money can do for you and where you're at financially and owning that truth about, you know, having spent act amount of money on new clothing or a new computer or whatever, I think is definitely the first step. And like you said, coming face to face and looking at those numbers, I mean, they don't lie. So two years ago, I left a job uh, that was paying me. But when I was doing that, I tallied up, you know, things that I was spending. And I I looked and I, I'd spent $1,000 on juice, like, <laughs> you know, the cold pressed juices. Yeah. It's like, what is happening? Because it's like I needed, I was like, I deserve this, you know, $11 juice because I worked a full day of something that I really wasn't enjoying or wasn't, you know, I wasn't being fulfilled by. Instead, why don't I just keep the $11 and not uh, hate my life? Not strong. I didn't hate my life, but it, it just wasn't something that I felt was making me very happy, right? And we have to think about that. It's like, are you spending to make up for something else? Is this adding value to your life? Absolutely. And I was just going to say, like, coming face to face with some of the emotions behind purchases. Like, I know I purchase things when I'm lonely. And so, you know, when my husband was traveling quite a bit back in 2014, 2015, I kind of started to see a little bit of those tendencies creep up again. But I think I was much more aware of it this time. And I was able to say out loud that. I'm feeling this way and that's why I'm, you know, wanting to online shop or buy a coffee every single day or twice a day even because I deserve it because, you know, my life is lonely right now or is not the way I want it to be or whatever your issue or challenges are. I think when you can start to identify why you're doing it and the emotions behind it, that is again, very powerful because you can do something different about it. Yeah, just awareness in general, mind being mindful about your spending. These are things that, that people don't think are necessary until they get into trouble and then they wonder, where does all my money go? And really, that that's it, right? So that's a spending, that's taking care of your spending less than you make sort of thing. And then what did you figure out about investing? What's your, What's your view on investing your money? Oh, I love it. And I always want people to do it. And I bug my friends <laughs> always and my sister. They're probably so annoyed with me. But I just like feel like I've unlocked this. This Maybe it's a secret. I mean, it's not really a secret, but it's this way that you can make your money grow. And you don't really see a lot at the beginning because you, you need time to build it up. But I feel like now, you know, however many years in I am, almost a decade of investing, I've started to see in months where maybe one of us is was on study leave or we were between jobs and we couldn't contribute what we wanted to to our savings. That was fine because we had already set ourselves up for that money to increase in value that month without us actually doing anything. And so 
I want everyone to always invest, but I'm sure I annoy my friends and family. I wish we could communicate what happens once, say, like once you hit the $100,000 mark or something like that. And, you know, when when something that is like that grows by 5% or 7 or 10%, that's a significant amount of money for you. Without like doing 5, anything. Without, without doing it, it's money for nothing, right? And you I know, feel like not... I've actually gotten more time back because I'm less obsessed with side hustles. I still write for money and speak for money, but I actually enjoy doing that. But because my money is earning money, I don't feel like I constantly need to maybe earn more than I am as well. I won't take on jobs if they're not at a certain threshold of income because my money is making money. So I don't, I can be more picky. And yeah, I think, you know, definitely once you hit the hundred thousand mark, it starts to make a difference, but just from there it goes up. Yeah. And you, you touched on like you have an early version of financial independence right now. Yeah, a little bit. Like you, you can make more decisions because you're not so worried about, you know, your, you know, your money's going to take care of itself. You, you know, it, it's not making enough money to pay your expenses now, I'm guessing. No, it's not. I but, wish. <laughs> but, you know, it's getting there and you're like, well, you know what? Yeah, I don't have to hustle as much as I used to. And, and we shouldn't have to as we get older. You know, I did a calculation that if I just left the money that I have in, didn't do a thing and just covered my, my own cost of living for the next, you know, until I'm 65, if you add in the old age security and CPP, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, no, I mean, if you, if you don't have that calculation in your spreadsheet, are you even an accountant? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the, is that the final test? They just, they, like, it's like one of those secret tests. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, it seems so simple, but uh, yeah, you don't get the designation. It's a pretty freeing feeling looking at that number that, you know, you have in your net worth and, you know, watching what the calculation will be for compounding it, you know, 7%, let's say, for 30 years and seeing that number and you're like, okay, I think, like, I have no idea how much retirement is going to cost me, but I think I'm going to be fine. Yeah, right? Because, you know, inflation is, is sucks because it makes it harder to calculate uh, things. But, um, you know, if you if you need $30,000 to live now, it, it, there might be a good chance you'll need $30,000 to live in the future. You know, it's a good rule of thumb, I suppose. Yeah, I think things won't change that much by the time we retire, but I could be wrong. I guess I can't see into the future. But at the end of the day, it's all about, for me, like decreasing stress. Like money is such a stressor for so many people. And it's like the biggest cause of fighting and divorce and stresses in families. And to be able to look at that number and not feel stressed about the future and if I just keep doing what I'm doing, I'll be set up very well is something I wish for everyone. And I think maybe that's why I push my friends and family so much to invest. Well, because, you know, you know, the effects. And I mean, you know, we don't, uh, you know, David Bach has tried to tell everybody with, uh, with his books and all the other financial gurus out there. And sometimes uh, it's good to hear from somebody that we know, somebody closer to home, somebody Canadian. And that's why I, I love our community of everybody just it's because everybody just kind of seems like well they can they do live next door i mean some people just live like a half an hour away from from me you got the west coast covered yeah. you and tom yes tom and i are having fun out here <laughs> i haven't really spent a lot of time in alberta but uh you know the the people that i've met uh are pretty great 
And you have less taxes somehow than than we do. Is that right? We do, but um, <laughs> we still like to complain about how much tax we pay here in Alberta. <laughs> you don't have pr- provincial tax. We right? don't. No, I really do think that they should implement one, though. I like the idea of taxes to make our country better, right? For and sure. Of course, every, nobody wants to pay tons of taxes, but if it means we're going to have services and this or that, then then I don't mind. And if it doesn't really make me poor, then I'm good too. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I could probably see where you're heading with that. But uh, I think for now, let's uh, that's a good place to wrap it up. Where can people find stuff about you? You can go to my website, JanineRogan.com, or check out my YouTube channel, which is just YouTube.com backslash Janine Rogan. And I'm all over Twitter and all over Instagram at the handle at Janine Rogan. So pretty easy to find me if you put my name into uh, Google search. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so you just bought a house and, you know, we probably do a whole episode about that. Congrats on that. You just you just moved in, right? Yeah, yesterday was move-in day. So it is wow. a mess right now, but it will get sorted out. Well, thanks for making internet the priority. Oh, always. <laughs> I, you know, taking a break from unpacking boxes, I was happy to do so. Thanks for joining me and hopefully I will see you again soon. Yes, thanks for having me. And that was episode 81 with Janine Rogan. If you're a regular listener, thanks so much for downloading the episodes every week. Another way you can support the podcast is by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com slash bowhumphreys. I'm also co-host and technical producer of a new podcast called Dear Ruby with my friend and personal finance expert, Rubina Ahmed Haq. Head to DearRuby.com, that's D-E-A-R-R-U-B-I.com to check out the first three episodes and let us know what you think by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. There's so much more that I could say in this free space at the end of every episode, I mean... If you're still listening, it's probably because you either just can't bother to get up and stop the episode and you're letting the tape run out, or maybe, just maybe, you're actually paying attention. I'll talk more about what's happening in my life in future episodes, but for now, if you actually want to find out more about me, I recommend that you Google my name. I just checked it out, and most of the stuff on the first six pages is actually about me. There's some junk in there, and I wouldn't recommend going past page six, but I'm pretty happy with my search results in general. Or you can just go to bowhumphreys.com, which has links to most of the things that I'm doing now. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with Sandy Martin, partner and financial planner at Spring Financial Planning and co-host of the Because Money podcast. 